I'm delighted that you're here, and I hope you've got your Bible with you and are eager to take that and study with us. We're going to be looking at several texts this evening, and several of those have several verses we'll look at in their context, so a text before you will be helpful. So I encourage you to get your Bible and follow along. We'll come back and look at the context of this a little bit later, but in Mark 4 and 41, the text says, And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? You know the story behind that, but we'll come back to that a little bit later. What I see in that is that Jesus has power over nature. This is the case where he calmed the storm. Even the wind and the sea obey him. Our question is, what does that mean to us? Is that just an interesting story that Jesus calmed the sea, we tell the story to the children, we teach it in young Bible classes, and we run through that as we go through the Gospels, or does that have some meaning and application in our daily life? Does that make a difference in how you live tomorrow? Looking at that story. That's what we intend to see. So let's talk about Jesus' power over nature. We're going to see three things. We're going to see his power over nature in catching of the fish on two occasions. One at the early part of his ministry and one toward the end. Then we're going to see his power over nature in calming the storm. And then we're going to see his power over nature in walking on water. And what we learn from each of those and why we say he had that power over nature. Three things we're going to study. We're going to look at this power over nature illustrated in three miracles. And then we're going to see it explained in the text, other texts besides those three miracles that explain this power that he has. And then we're going to see it understood in our lives. Let's start with illustrating his power over nature in three miracles. So I encourage you to get your Bible and let's turn to Luke chapter 5. Here's the first of the three miracles we're going to focus upon. And that first one is that of the catching of the fish. There are two occasions. You see two verses uh, before you. One is in Luke 5. The other is in John 21. There's not, there are not parallel accounts. Those are two different accounts. But they both have to do with catching fish. And so I want us to read verses 1 through 11 of Luke chapter 5. And then we'll talk about what we learn from that. So get your Bible open to Luke 5. Let's look at verses 1 through 11. You are familiar with most of these stories. And so it ought to be quite easy for us to catch on to the story. And so it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which was Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitude from the boat. And when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said, Master, we've toiled all the night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I'll let down the net. And when he had done this, he had caught a great number of fish. And their net was breaking, so they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come to help them. And when they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the great catch of fish which he had taken. And so were also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. And so what we have in Luke chapter 5, this was taking place during his Galilean ministry. 
This is early in his ministry, in the Galilean ministry. The setting was at the Sea of Galilee, not far from Capernaum. We think that this took place on that western to the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee, not far from Capernaum, because of some things that are said a little bit later in the context. And so that's the setting for that. The timing is that people were pressing about him to hear the word of God, verse 1. A multitude was gathering around and pressing in upon him to hear the word of God. And he put out a little from the land in one of the boats and began to teach the people. And having finished that, he turned to Peter and said, launch out into the deep and let down your net for a catch. And Peter said, master, we've told all the night and we've caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I'll let down the net. And they did. And there was such a great catch of fish that the net began to break. They called for the partners to come in the other boat and they filled both boats and they began to sink. And Peter was overwhelmed and fell down at the feet of Jesus and said, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Jesus was becoming popular at this time and he gives evidence of the word that he's teaching by a miracle. He's taught the people, how can I show them how will he demonstrate that what he's teaching is the truth? He works a miracle giving evidence that indeed his t teaching is true. And so what Jesus shows is the power of his word. That if he could say, let down your net for a catch and cause the net to break and cause the, a great catch of fish, the same thing could be happening with reference to anything that he may say. Now we'll come back to that and talk about Luke chapter 5 in a moment. But let's go to another account and this time in John chapter 21. This has been referred to as breakfast by the sea. This is after his resurrection in John chapter 21, beginning at verse 1, and we'll read through verse 14. This is another occasion. The first was toward the beginning of his ministry, or early in his ministry at least, and now this is uh, late, and that is in, after his resurrection. John chapter 21, beginning at verse 1. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to his disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and in this way he showed himself. Simon... Uh, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana of Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee and two other of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we're going also with you. And they went out immediately and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning had come, Jesus stood on the shore, and yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. And then Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? And they answered, no. And he said to them, cast your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And so they cast and now they were not able to draw in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he had removed it and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in a little boat for they were not far from the land, about 200 cubics, dragging the net, of, uh, net uh, with fish. Then as soon as they had come to the land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. And Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to the land full of large fish, 153. And although they were so many, the net was not broken. And Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dare ask him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. Now this is the third time Jesus showed himself to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And so this is very similar to that first miracle we saw in Luke chapter 5. Perhaps this was to remind them of earlier things that had been done concerning the catch of fish. He assures the disciples, his apostles, of his power, much like he had assured them early in the Galilean ministry. Now let's talk about both miracles, the two miracles together. 
as we look at the two miracles, there was the one of the great catch of fish, one after his resurrection, a great catch of fish, 153 fish. What do we learn from them? Both reveal a miraculous insight of our Lord. Both reveal a miraculous insight. There is no guesswork. He is not saying to Peter in Luke 5, why don't you launch out into the deep and just maybe, just maybe you'll catch some fish. I don't know, but let's give it a try. But he knew that when he laid out his net for a catch, he would catch a great catch of fish. He knew that. He either knew or he either brought the fish to the spot where they were catching or where they would catch, or he knew there was a school of fish there. Either way, there's a miraculous insight on the part of Jesus in both miracles in John 21 and also in Luke chapter 5. On both occasions, they had fished all night and caught nothing. That's important. Why is that important? If they had been catching a great catch of fish so that they put out their net and they catch a net full of fish, they put it out again, a net full of fish, put it out again, and a net full of fish. When Jesus said, put out your net and there'll probably be a catch of fish. Well, sure, because we've done that all night long. That hadn't happened. They've caught nothing all night. It shows the true nature of a miracle because we have the contrast of the utter failure of their fishing to the enormous success through the miracle of Jesus. And so that indeed shows his power. It also shows us the acceptance of the authority of Jesus when they do what he says. Look at the great results that come because of that. Both occasions were a great catch of fish. Both occasions they caught a great catch of fish because they did what the Lord had said. So we see Jesus' power over nature in the catching of fish. But let's talk about another miracle, and this is the calming of the storm. I want to read all three accounts. These are short accounts, not as long as the last two. Let's start with Matthew chapter 8. Let's go to Matthew chapter 8, beginning at verse 23 now, and read through verse 27 because there's a little variation in the three accounts of Jesus calming the storm. This again is Jesus' power over nature. So let's start at verse 23 of Matthew chapter 8. The text says, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with waves, but he was asleep. And then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, we are fearful, o ye, why are you fearful, O ye of little faith? And then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And so the men marveled, saying, who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now let's go over to Mark's account in Mark chapter 4, beginning at verse 35 through verse 41. The same account. This is a parallel account, not a different occasion. But there's a little information here that we didn't see over in Matthew, and we'll see the same kind of thing over in Luke. On the same day when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. And when they left the multitude, he took, they took him along in the boat uh, as he was, and the other little boats were also with him. And a great storm arose, and the waves beat on the boat so that, they were, that it was already filling. And he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he arose and rebuked the wind and, to, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey? Now let's go one more time to Luke chapter 8, beginning at verse 22. And read Luke's account of this because, again, there is some variation that we'll call, uh, call attention to here in just a moment. 
And it happened on a certain day when they got into the boat with his disciples. He said to them, let us cross over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out, but as they sailed, he fell asleep, and the windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, Who can this be? That he, for he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. All three accounts talk about the same thing. Let's talk about the geographical makeup of the region because that has a lot to do with how the, the susceptibility of the sudden storms arising upon the sea. The Sea of Galilee was some 680 feet below sea level. The, it was surrounded by mountains, as you can see on the map, which created passes through which created a funnel through which the wind would come and then suddenly storms would come down upon the sea. In fact, Luke's account talks about the storm coming down on the sea, coming down off of the mountain and through the passes and ca causing a great wind to pass across the sea. And so we understand why there would be a great storm. This storm was so violent that it looked as if they were going to perish. In fact, they awoke Jesus from his sleep and said, Master, we are perishing. We're going to die here in this storm. Now, there is a difference in the accounts as to the rebuke that Jesus gave. In Matthew, he rebuked them before he calmed the storm. In Mark and in Luke, he rebuked them after he calmed the storm. So when did he do it? The conclusion, I think, is that he did both. He rebuked them and he calmed the storm and then he rebuked them again. Why do you have such little faith? He rebukes the storm and calms it and then he rebukes them again for their lack of faith. But furthermore, the miracle was the calm at the spoken word. He just speaks and then there was a sudden calm. It's interesting the other translations. The New American Standard Bible says there was, it was perfectly calm. If you can imagine such a storm raging, they think they're going to die. And all he says is peace be still and there was perfect calm. The New Revised Standard says there was a dead calm. International says it was completely calm. If you could imagine the worst of the storms you've ever been in and someone just says, peace, be still, and it just suddenly stops. Jesus has power indeed over nature. By rebuking the sea, he shows he's the same one who made the world. Psalm 104 talks about the one who made the world and who controls the world and can rebuke the world and rebuke the seas. And they did exactly that. He shows he's involved in the creation by his rebuking of the storm and controlling. So Jesus has power over nature. He has power over nature, seen in the catching of the fish. It's seen in the calming of the storm. But a third miracle we want to focus upon is the walking on the water. And each of these accounts have a little insight that the other may not have. Let's start with Matthew's account. Let's go to Matthew chapter 14. So let's go to Matthew chapter 14, beginning at verse 22. And we'll read through verse 33. It's not a long account, but this is where Jesus walked on the water. In fact, I think we'll see before we get through three miracles and perhaps four, I think four miracles that are found in this context, at least as we harmonize with John. But anyway, be that as it may, let's look at beginning at verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitude away, he went to the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was alone there. 
But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the winds were contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled and saying, It is a ghost, for they cried out for fear. But Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on water. And he said, Come. And when Peter came down out of the boat, he was walking on the water to Jesus. But when he saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and began to sink and cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and called him and said, Oh, you have little faith, why did you doubt? And when he got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, we're going to look at the other accounts. Well, let's start with Matthew's account now. Matthew records three miracles here. What I'm wanting us to see is Jesus' power over nature. First of all, we noticed his walking on the water. He came to the disciples, he sent them away, and he goes to the mountain to pray, and after he finishes praying, there is the boisterous sea uh, that the disciples are on, and he comes to them walking on the water. That's miracle number one. They didn't know at first it was Jesus, so Peter said, if it's you, command me to come, and he said, come. And so now we have Peter walking on the water. That's not by the power of Peter, but that's by the power of the Lord. If he could walk on water, he could make Peter walk on the water, and he did. But that's not all. I want you to notice at verse 32, he caused the sea to cease again. He has power over the storm and over the boisterous winds. Three miracles have been performed here. It shows he has power over nature. He can walk on water, he can make another walk on water, and he can calm the storm. But let's go to Mark's account now. And I want you to notice in Mark's account, Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 45. I won't read the entire account of that. But we have the same story that he went to the mountain to pray and then uh, he saw that they were straining for the roaring and the wind was against them, verse 48. And he told them, be of good cheer, desire, do not be afraid, verse 50. Now let's pick up at verse 51, then he went into the boat with them and the wind ceased. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. For they had not understood about the loaves. That's the feeding of the 5,000. Just look above this text and you'll see the feeding of the 5,000. Because their heart was hardened. What I want you to see is in Mark's account, they didn't seem to get the point about these miracles. They, they're there at the feeding of the 5,000, but it's not registering with them what all that means. Nor his walking on the water. Jesus has power over nature, but it's not sinking in exactly what all that means. But let's go to John's account. I said perhaps there are four miracles here. Some think not, maybe not, but I think perhaps there is. Beginning at verse 15 of John, this is the same story, the same account. He sent the disciples away and he goes to the mountain to pray. Then he comes and joins them. And uh, verse 19 picking up, they rode about three or four miles and they saw Jesus walking on the sea, drawing near to the boat and they were afraid. And he said, it is I do not be afraid. And then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Some think that means they just quickly got there. I wonder if that doesn't mean there was a fourth miracle, there was immediate transportation. Check your wording of the text and see if that's not perhaps the case. If that be the case, he still has now power over nature. Four occasions, we had three miracles recorded in the context, and here's a fourth, perhaps, of Jesus having power over nature. Now, 
Before we go to the next point, here's the, here's the three stories. Here's the three miracles. The catching of the fish, the calming of the storm, and the walking on the water. If you saw this great catch of fish, when no one else was catching fish, and then you saw him walking on the water, and you saw him calm the storm, and you saw him call someone else to walk on the water, perhaps immediate transportation, you would have to say Jesus has power over nature. Now that's explained in the text. Not just in those contexts. Let's look at some other texts. And what I mean by that, let's look at some texts that explain how he has that power over nature. Let's go to Colossians chapter 1. You might open your Bible to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 17 says, In him all things consist. And that phrase alone tells me why Jesus could do what he did, why he could walk on water, why he could calm the storm, why he could cause Peter to walk on water, etc. all the miracles that we've just noticed. He had power over nature. And here's why. Because in him all things consist. Here's what the text says. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. I'm picking up at verse 15. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or power, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, Here's our phrase, in him all things consist. Now let's put that thing in its context, that passage in its context. The context is dealing with the preeminence of Christ. Christ is preeminent in all things. He's transcendent. He's supreme. And then Paul in his text argues that that, pre that preeminence is seen in his relationship to creation, beginning at verse 15. I want us to notice at verse 16 now. We're Colossians 1 and in verse 16. Notice the phrases that he uses, by him all things were created. Look at verse 16a. By him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, principalities, powers. So the text says, by him all things were created. In other words, the creation was the result of the Son's own desire and not merely that of the Father. Was the Father involved in creation? He certainly was. But this text tells me the Son was involved in creation. By him all things were created. But that's not all verse 16 says. Look at 16b. Through him all things were created. He's the agency through whom and by whom all things were created. So it was by his desire, by his plan, but also he was the agent through whom that was created. And furthermore, 16c, the third part of the verse, for him all things were created. Notice the end of the verse, and for him. Not only did he create the world, but it was created for him. Meaning, it was created for his will and for his purpose. That tells us he is preeminent in all things. Now notice at verse 16, he is before all things. That means he's preexistent. So before there was light, he existed before there was light. Before there was man, before there was animals, before there was the earth. All things existing, he was existing before all of that. He is before all things, verse 17 says. Now let's go to verse 17. He is before all things, and by him, or in him, all things consist. What does that mean? It just simply means that all of the universe is kept in order and moving and functioning by his power. So what keeps the universe moving and functioning and doing what it does? It's by the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. A.T. Robertson said the word consist means to place together and here to, to cohere, to hold together. So what keeps the universe cohering and functioning and moving and operating together as it does, it is through the power of Christ, Colossians 1 says. But furthermore, Robertson observes that Christ is the controlling and unifying force in nature. 
If he created the world and he controls the world, no wonder then while he was here on earth, he was having power over nature. He could walk on the water. He could calm the storm. He could do whatever he wanted to do with reference to nature. By him, all things consist. Let's look at another text. It tells us essentially the same thing. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 1. You are familiar with Hebrews chapter 1. The book of Hebrews particularly talks about Christ being superior to angels and to prophets. The text says he upholds all things by the word of his power. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Look at verse 3. Who being in the brightness of his glory and express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. Here is a text that explains his power over nature. So what am I learning from the context? Well, the context is he's superior to prophets. That's the context of verses 1 to 3. Here's something that's true of Christ. There are several things true of Christ. It's not true of the prophets. For example, he's the heir of all things, verse 2. Through whom he made the world. The worlds were made through Christ. They weren't made through the prophets. He is the brightness of the glory of God. He is the express image of his person, verse 3. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Not only did he create the world, but he controls the world by the word of his power. In other words, he has power over nature. Here's the point. King observed the passage therefore affirms that God, the Father, committed into the hands of the Son his omnipotent word to wield in the upholding as formerly in creating of the universe. In other words, the Son, the text is saying, has the power to wield all power over nature. He does have power over nature. Milligan says, if he upholds all things by the word of his power, then indeed beyond all doubt, he is God with us. Now I see the power of Jesus over nature illustrated in three miracles. I see it explained in two texts. Now let's talk about how that's understood in our lives. What does that mean to us? This is not just an exercise in, okay, this is great, good story. Jesus had power over nature. What do you do with this as you go to work or to school? Or you go about your daily activity, what does that mean to us? Well, our Lord is in control of nature is what that tells me. And that must be understood and seen in the way that we live and the way we conduct ourselves. Let's begin to list some things that we learn from that. Here's the first. That should cause us to forsake everything we have. That fits with our study this morning. Concerning our kingdom that we're in, the kingdom of our Lord that we're in is not a kingdom wherein we put our trust and our confidence in material things, but in God. Let's go to the Luke's account of our study that we just looked at a moment ago. So we look at these quickly because we've already made our way through these contexts. Do you remember at the end of this great catch of fish, the text says, so they brought their boats to land and they forsook all and followed him. They are overwhelmed by his power. And that should cause us to forsake all. Whatever it may be, even family if we have to, our wealth if we have to, our former life if we have to. Here's something else, same context. We should stand in awe of Christ. When I stand back and look at his power over nature, I should stand in awe of Christ. Look at chapter 5, uh, Luke chapter 5 and in verse 8. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. That's an interesting reaction. They have a great catch of fish. He's not just overwhelmed saying, Oh, what a great catch of fish. He runs to Jesus and falls down and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord causes Peter to humbly confess his sin and his unworthiness. I want to suggest to you the majesty of God does that to us. 
William Taylor says that a knowledge of oneself obtained through the revelation to us of God in Christ is one of the main elements of the power in those who would labor for the good of the other. I say, amen. It should cause us, let's go to John 21 quickly, to want to come toward him. What's, what happened in John chapter 21 beginning at verse 7? You remember, they, they're making their way to the shore. This is after his resurrection and Jesus is on the shore and he speaks to them and asks them if they have any, any fish and come and eat breakfast. They weren't sure who it was, but when they come to realize that it was Jesus, verse 7 and 8 said, but the other disciples came in the little boat. They were not far from the land, dragging the net with the fish. In other words, they came to him as soon as they knew who he was. As soon as they saw he was the one that caused us to have this great catch of fish. We know now who he is. And they made their way toward him. It should make us have, make our way toward him. We should see God in our prosperity and our success. Here's something else. Viewing the power of Jesus over nature should cause us to understand his power translates into spiritual power. Let's go back to the count in Luke chapter 5, again, where they caught the great catch of fish. I want you to notice in verse 10 that Jesus told them, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll catch men. In other words, Jesus wasn't focused on the physical power over nature. That demonstrates I've got power, all right. But here's what I'm interested in. I want you to see the power over the spiritual. I want you to see spiritual application. From now on, you shall catch, be fishers of men. If he has power over the material world, Jesus has spiritual power. He has the power to change the hardened heart. If Jesus can say, peace be still and be still, what do you think he can do that, uh, to that hardened heart? You say, well, here's a person that is so hardened in sin, I'm not sure that anything could help them. I want to tell you that if Jesus can say, peace be still, and the sea be calm, if he can walk on the water, his message can break the hardened heart. And that ought to cause us to understand the power translates into spiritual power. Here's something else. Looking at the power of Jesus over nature should cause us to conclude that he controls anything that makes me afraid. I want you to go back with me to Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 8. This is recorded in more one account, and we've read all of those accounts. But the disciples were afraid, and I want you to notice at verse 25 that the disciples awoke him saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. They were in dire straits. In fact, one account says, Luke's account says they were in jeopardy. Verse 27, they marveled saying, who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey? They were afraid of the storm, the text says. I want to tell you, your storm may involve turmoil within the family. You may not be out on a literal sea, and you may not be in a boat, and it's being tossed, and you think you're going to perish, but you may think you're about to drown because of turmoil within the family. That may be your storm you're dealing with. It may be health challenges. Maybe difficulties with a job that is bringing pressure upon you spiritually. It may be personal problems. Maybe church issues. You're going through all kinds of toil and storms in your life. Things that make you afraid. First Peter 5 and verse 7 said, Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. The Lord has a calming effect. Let's go to Mark's account. Let's go to Mark chapter 6 and in verse 50. We ran across this verse a little bit ago. And as he was walking on the water, the text says, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. The presence of Jesus has a calming effect. 
I should conclude the Lord, if he controls anything, he can control what makes me afraid, whatever I'm afraid of, whatever, whatever my storm is. He can control that too. If he could calm the sea, he can control that. Here's something else I learned from this context in these three accounts, that I should have total trust. Total trust in the Lord as we've talked about from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus was asleep in the storm. He was sleeping. He was asleep on a pillow in the stern, the text says. While the storm is raging and the disciples are thinking, we're going to perish, we're all going to die here. Jesus is asleep, which has to do with the total absence of fear. The fishermen, on the other hand, seem to be putting their, trusting their abilities as sailors and as fishermen and not in the one who made the sea. They're not getting the point. This is the one in the boat with us who made the sea itself. And we're okay. They realize we can't handle this storm and we, we don't have the ability to handle the storm and they're not putting their confidence in the one who made the sea. And thus he rebukes them for their lack of faith and their lack of trust. Oh, ye of little faith. Where is your faith, he said in one account. Where's your faith? Where is that? Here's something else I learned. We should hold on to faith when the wind blows. That's what Jesus was saying. We ought to hold on to faith when the wind blows. What good is faith if we lose it instead of using it? What good's your faith if in the midst of the storm blowing and the winds begin to blow and the sea begins to toss, you lose the very thing you need? That's why Jesus said, where is your faith? If you can't find faith when you need it most, it is of no value. You might not need that strong faith. You do need strong faith at all times, but you may not think you need strong faith when everything's going well, but it's when that storm hits is when you need your faith. And if you can't find it when you need it most, it is of no value to you at all. Knowing Jesus indeed has power over nature. Here's something else I learned and I should understand from this text. We should recognize the Lord in the effect he produces. Let's go to John chapter 21. Go to John chapter 21. This is that case of breakfast by the sea. And I want us to notice verses 6 and 7. We should recognize the Lord in the effect he produces. When you see this effect, I know that's the Lord. I know the power of the Lord's behind that. And here's an example of that in our text. Jesus told them to cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. He didn't say you might catch some. Put your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some fish. They'd fished all night and caught nothing, but you'll find some fish over there. And that they did. And the disciple that Jesus loved said, it's the Lord. I know it's the Lord. How do you know it's the Lord? Because we caught fish. We fished all night, caught nothing. And he said if we put our net down, he would catch fish. We did and we caught fish. It's the Lord. I know it's the Lord. I know it is. We should recognize the Lord in the effect that he produces. Jesus has power over nature. Illustrated in three miracles. The walking on the water, calming of the storm, the catching of the fish. Explained in two texts in Colossians 1 and Hebrews chapter 1 because he controls the world. He created the world and he controls the world. No wonder he has power over nature. That ought to be understood in our lives that we live a life that says, you know what, I know Jesus has power over nature. I know he does. It's the way I live. It's the way I act because he has power over nature. 
There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and sing?